So we're going to jump in to Genesis 42 here eventually, but if we rewind the story of here, the Joseph of the Scripture, there's quite a tale behind this. <coughs> he has 11 brothers, and um, the 10 of them are from other women. Only one of them is from the same mother. <coughs> and his father, Jacob, loves Joseph above his other sons. And uh, he's given him special privilege. The Lord has blessed Joseph also. And he has spiritual capabilities, uh, the interpretation of dreams and uh, also dreams and visions of his own. His brothers resent him for it. Uh, that resentment grows until they want to kill him. They throw him in a pit, thinking that they'll starve him to death rather than actually commit some act of violence, and then make the decision and sell him off to slave traders. He's transported into Egypt and sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar used him as his servant within his household, eventually putting him in charge of his whole household because he's so responsible. Potiphar's wife lusts after young Joseph, and eventually she throws herself upon him. He refuses her, flees the situation, and she cries rape. He's arrested, and he's thrown in prison, interprets the dreams of two of the Pharaoh's servants. One of them is put to death. The other is restored to his position of power with the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh has a dream, needs interpretation. That servant remembers Joseph, and they send for him. He interprets the Pharaoh's dream, which has to do with this great famine that has come upon the land where we currently are in chapter 42. Seven years of abundance. They store up 20% of the grain, which is so abundant they can't even count that percentage when they're done. They're just mass storing in warehouses grain. And now the famine has come, and the world is starving to death. So in Genesis 42, verse 1, it says, When Jacob, this is Joseph's father, saw that there was grain in Egypt. So word has gotten around, and people are traveling into Egypt to get grain and sustenance for themselves. It says, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? I don't know if they're so hungry that they're starting to think one another looks like they could perhaps be a meal, or what it is that he's saying to them, why are you looking at one another like that? It may be what we see as we move through the passage that they have a very guilty sense about Egypt. They've sold their brother off in slavery to the land of Egypt, and knowing that there's grain in Egypt, they have that hesitancy to go to Egypt. I don't know if you've had that experience where your shortcomings cause you to not want to be involved with certain people and situations, and that's perhaps what we see going on here. You know, the obvious answer for Jacob is, why aren't you heading into Egypt to get food? If that's the only location where there's food, what's holding you back? 
I think that if we examine our own hearts, we can see that. Certain situations we should automatically take advantage of. Something holds us back. Close examination. There's some failure in our part that keeps us from being involved. He said, Indeed, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall them. I think this is the beginning of us seeing that Jacob has an idea that the other ten brothers were involved in Joseph's disappearance. They've lied to dad and said that some animal must have attacked him. They bring home Joseph's special coat all torn up and bloody. But we begin to hear some confessions from Jacob that says, I don't trust these ten with the sons of this particular wife. So here, they don't want this calamity. Verse 5, the sons of Israel went to buy grain. Uh, Israel being Jacob. He's had his name changed by God, so we'll see that a couple of times. The sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land because of the interpretation of the dream and the wisdom that he had. Pharaoh's put him in charge of all of the grain collection. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. If you pause there and just glance down towards the end of chapter 42 at verse 23, it says they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. Okay, So in this whole process, Joseph is not speaking their language. He's speaking Egyptian to them through an interpreter. So that's part of what's meant by he spoke roughly to them. He speaks to them in a forceful way, in a foreign language. Verse 7 continues, then he said to them, where do you come from? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Okay, look at chapter 37, verse 7, where it says, They were, there we were, this is Joseph's dream, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. You think about this for a second, you guys. They're currently there because of grain. They're bowing down to Joseph for grain. How poetic is that? That God has brought them to this place. Interesting how the Lord will humble. This is going to be humbling to Joseph also. It's, good. it's not just humbling to his brothers. I mean, I'm sure he's got a smirk on his face, but at the same time, he also knows, I'm not in control of my circumstances. 
Look at all that I've been launched through, right? He didn't at some point say, you know, I ought to get myself out of prison. God took care of his circumstances, launching him into difficulty, pulling him from the difficulty. He's in a place of great humility. Now his brothers stand before him bowing, and he's got to be saying, oh God, how could you have accomplished this? This is an incredible moment. Look at verse 9 continuing. Then he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. He is toying with them. There's, there's a little bit of payback going on right here in this moment. Verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. That's questionable. You know, honest men. They're being honest in the moment. But these are the same men who brutalized Joseph and intended to kill him and then sold him off into slavery. They're, they're being honest about this moment in their life. He said to them, no, but you've come to see the nakedness of the land. The vulnerability is what's being implied. They said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in them, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. And then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. Now, this prison is not... An American prison. Okay. There's no comfort here, right? There's no complaining about what channels you get on the cable system or whether your mattress is thick enough or any in most of these ancient cultures, they didn't even supply you with food. That 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 came from very benevolent people who on their own perhaps had been in prison or other family members would be in prison and they would bring it in. You know, this idea of bread and water, that doesn't emerge until you get into the medieval times. Prison was unthinkably hard. Paul, the apostle, New Testament, put in the Mamertine prison in the lowest dungeon. There are at least two accounts we're aware of where the prisoners inside that location died of asphyxiation because the human feces that was in there was emitting so much gas, there wasn't enough oxygen to breathe, and the prisoners died. There is one occasion where they opened the lower dungeon to remove them, and the guard who opened the door died of asphyxiation. Prison is especially difficult. Joseph putting his brothers in prison. You know, when I, when I talk uh, throughout these passages about how this man does have a very serious pain in his heart, 
He's not giving them some luxurious accommodations within this prison. He has them put in prison. They had together plotted to have him put to death. And so he's put them in prison. He pulls them out and he makes this statement, I fear God. Literally translated, I also fear the true and living God. He's he's giving them a hint as to where his heart is spiritually. You see, the Egyptians worshipped a pantheon of gods. They had all kinds of gods that they worshipped, right? It is the living God that he's worshipping and fearing the God they worship is what he's implying to them. Something should ring in their head. No Egyptian worships the God of the Hebrews. Verse 19, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your house and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Understand how gracious he's being, right? Uh, he could just say, like he said earlier, I'm only going to let one of you go. Everybody stays in prison. And he could have said to that one, be on your way. Instead, he supplies grain for the whole household. He's being merciful. While he's driving the point home, He's being merciful. Look, we get the impression sometimes that there's only supposed to be this great tolerance on the part of Christians. There is discipline also. There is correction also, right? Jesus is the one who said, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he begs your forgiveness, be ready to forgive him. There is accountability within the body of believers. Here, he's holding them to account, but being gracious simultaneously. Bring your younger brother, so your words will be verified. Verse 21, they said to one another, notice this, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. What in the world caused them to bring this up? Where in anything that they've said or Joseph said has this been the subject of conversation? This is how pained their heart is. Under pressure, this is what comes out of their mouths. We're guilty from what we did to Joseph. 22, and Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. He owns it. He doesn't say required of you. He was there. He was guilty. He didn't interfere. He was afraid of the other nine. And so he partnered with them in abusing Joseph. And he's saying, now we're paying for it. It's funny how the guilty conscience works. They did not know that Joseph understood them. There it is again. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. He's pained over their pain. That's a wonderful thing. 
It's a wonderful thing to see a man who's holding those who claim to be believers accountable, and yet at the same time, he takes no joy in it. He's brokenhearted over what he's experienced. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Literally, he's putting him in handcuffs. Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack. That's secretly. They don't know that yet. And give them provisions for the journey. So not just the grain, but what they need to travel. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. And there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Listen. God is trying to cause spiritual growth and maturity in them. He's not trying to harm them, destroy them, or even pay them back. He wants them to grow up. We often get in those places of difficulty and trial and challenge. And like the Israelites, we begin to cry out against God. As though God takes some joy in our misery. Listen, God will not even just allow misery, pain and difficulty. He'll send it. He'll send it to us. It's so that we know where our weakness is and how we need to grow. When the failure comes, that shows you where you're really at. Shows you how strong you really were. If we think we're in a place that we're not, God wants us to know where we really are. 29 says, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. We said to him, we are honest men. We're not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of the one father. One is no more. The youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine to your household and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you are not spies, that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you. You may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. They were afraid. Their father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. I underlined that. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. You want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. See, he's not saying the Lord has bereaved me. He's not saying nature has taken my son away from me. He's not saying anything regarding anyone else. He's saying of these nine that are standing in front of him, you have bereaved me of my son. I don't know how. I don't know what it was. But I don't have Joseph because of you guys. You're responsible somehow. Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons. I wonder how the boys felt about that. 
If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. He said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He's left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I wouldn't be able to recover. That, that would kill me, is what he's saying. Verse 1 of chapter 43, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain. I wonder how long that took, huh? Not, it's not one day, okay? You're going to see that, right? Simeon is in prison, meanwhile, right? Which they had brought from Egypt. And their father said to them, Go back, <clears throat> buy a little food. Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why do you deal so wrongfully with me? To tell the man whether you had still another brother. They said the man asked us pointedly, about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? We told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judas said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. The famine's going to kill us, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. They've stayed home and eaten the grain in a long enough period of time that here he's saying we could have ventured all the way back into Egypt purchased more grain and made it all the way back here by now. So they've stayed home for a good spell. Verse 11, their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down present to the man. This is, uh, the grain has failed, but there are other resources. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio, nuts and almonds. Take double your money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And I don't even view this as a statement of faith it's just desperation he doesn't have any choice so the men took that present and benjamin and they took double money in their hand and rose and went down to egypt they stood before joseph when joseph saw benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house take these men to my house slaughter an animal make ready for these men will dine with me at noon the men did as Joseph ordered. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's 
house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. These guys have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have, they have lived in rebellion to God for so long that they're used to everything being a drama. Right? Do you know people like this? Have you lived this life? You know, not comfortable unless things are blowing up around you. I don't know how many people I've dealt with that come from backgrounds of drug addiction and alcoholism to where everybody is watching their life finally get put together and smoothly and then they sabotage it themselves and everyone is stunned. Why? Why would they make such a fool decision here in the moment? As though they had no contentment unless there was distress in their life. They're just used to that constant chaos and can't normalcy to them. That's equals boring. Hey, you need to let those things go and settle into normalcy. That's peace, God's will. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, "Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it happened when it came to the encampment that we opened our sacks. And there, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We don't know who put our money in our sacks, but he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. That's true. God's relationship with Joseph has caused Joseph to say, this is the way it'll be, and that money was put back in their sacks because of God. He says, I had your money. That's not a lie, right? It was at his disposal. I had your money, and I put it back in your sacks. I had it. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the men brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. They washed their feet. He gave their donkeys feed. Then they made a present ready for Joseph, coming at noon. And they heard that he would eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, house into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom he spoke, is he alive? And they answered, notice this, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. Remember the second dream? The father's going to bow down to Joseph also. And here he's already being declared as your servant. They bowed their heads down, prostrated themselves, literally lie down before him. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? Keeping in mind that Benjamin was around three years old when Joseph left. And now, 23 or so, he wouldn't recognize him. He has to ask this question. Is this you know, the one you spoke of to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere 
to weep, had to get away from them. He went into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face, composed himself, and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now you may recall back Genesis 41, verse 14, Joseph in prison, going to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changing his clothes, and came to Pharaoh. You don't come in as a shepherd to especially government officials in Egypt. You're going to see later as the entire family comes to Egypt, they give them Goshen to go live in because shepherds are considered an abomination to the Egyptians and they don't uh, uh, mingle with them. So they're not going to eat a meal at the same table uh, with one another at this point. These are all unshaved, you know, shepherd Hebrew people that the Egyptians don't have anything to do with. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. Men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. The um, He's still toying with them. He, he sets them down in order, oldest to youngest. You know, To them, this seems almost like supernatural knowledge. Like, how could he possibly have known our birth order? You know, some of them are just a year or two apart. It would be impossible to just, in order, set them right down according to their birth. That's exactly what he does. The, the graciousness of the Lord is what really stands out to me. As much, as much as this man is sitting here right now and tinkering with these brothers who have messed with him, the thing that stands out to me, is that he's not taking the eye-for-an-eye approach. Okay, um, I was asked uh, a <clears throat> study that I'm leading uh, this week, you know, is it a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Old Testament calls for eye-for-an-eye, and then Jesus in the New Testament says, turn the other cheek. The clarification is that in the Old Testament, when it says eye-for-an-eye, and this is significant to this passage. The Old Testament says eye for an eye. It's setting limitations. You see, the, the mentality within the culture was um, you've, you know, caused me to lose my eye. Uh, therefore, I'm going to come to your home and kill you and your children and burn your house to the ground. It was a limitation that if you've lost an eye, then the farthest you can go is to remove someone else's eye. You can't go overboard. You can't cause vengeance to be carried out in an excessive way. And that's why Jesus draws it back even further. Sure, eye for an eye, but how about turn the other cheek? I, I see here, again, that he's calling for the accountability and yet being gracious. He's ready to forgive them. I think that there's a very significant lesson uh, for us as believers. 
people are going to wrong us. People are going to do horrible things to us in life. And there does need to be accountability. And yet there needs to be a great graciousness in our lives where we're ready to forgive, right? And in that same passage, when Jesus is saying to Peter, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. That's where it comes up of how many times, right? And Peter thinks he's being generous when he says, if my brother, and I want to point this out, if my brother asks me for forgiveness seven times in a day, uh, you know, I, 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 I should forgive him for seven times. Jesus says 70 times seven. Right? And some of us are like, oh, 490. Okay, then that's it. That's as far as I'm going. The idea was, you know, it was hyperbole. He was saying countless, endless. If someone comes to you and, and genuinely confesses and asks your forgiveness, you should always have a heart of forgiveness. That should be the heart, mind, and life of a believer. I, I think that the church has been imbalanced on both regards. And I, and I want to be very clear about that. They've been imbalanced on both regards. One is that they've been way too legalistic, right? Choker hold. Just somebody messes up, just assassinate them. The other extreme is don't hold anybody accountable. Be tolerant like the world. Just let people run amok. That destroys the church just as quickly. The rot and the decay and the sin that enters into the church as a result will destroy the church, I think, more frequently than legalism, right? Legalism drives people away and diminishes the church. That tolerance actually gathers people in. They cluster together in large groups of corruption and just cause one another to decay in their faith. It needs to be both the accountability and the forgiveness, right? As you know, you you'd be amazed. Um, J. Vernon McGee, uh, he did a commentary on Joseph, and he he discovered forty four different ways that Joseph is like Jesus. It's just a remarkable image of Jesus, this Old Testament character here. How about the idea of both accountability? and forgiveness. That, that's another way that we see Joseph being an example of Jesus Christ. Have the heart that's ready to forgive, and yet at the same time, hold the biblical standard. I pray the Lord would bless us with that mentality. It has to start with us first, right? Because sometimes we would gladly do that to other people. Do we hold ourselves accountable and accept God's forgiveness? Or do we have the imbalance, right? Are we incredibly legalistic with ourselves and put a choker hold that we can't possibly keep upon ourselves? I've watched many people do that. Create an impossible level of Christian existence for themselves. Create rules and regulations they couldn't possibly keep. Frustrate themselves to the point of anxiety. So they have to be a hypocrite. Because they're failing and trying to act like they're not. The other extreme internally, to just put up with everything in their life. Just say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm saved by grace. So I'll just live however I want to. Imbalance. The balance that we see in the scripture is what we need to uphold. Amen? Amen.
Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you very much for your word. I do pray that you would bless us with your great love. Help us to follow you with our lives. Lord, we so enjoy what you are and what you've done in us. Minister to us. Help us to follow you. Accomplish your work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.